0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. So we can find your way back to your seats. I do want to keep us moving along. Merry Christmas to you. And this is the last Sunday of the year. We're going to continue in our series in Galatians. So please open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I have um, this morning um, just one page for you. Uh, for reference, um, I'm usually a two-page guy. So I'm, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that um, we're, we're somewhere in the halfway mark. Uh, but for the interest of, of time and obviously for the sake of our, our children uh, and our, our mothers watching our children, uh, I want to move relatively briskly through, through the text. Therefore, we are only going to cover this morning the first three verses of chapter 6 in Galatians, but I want to read just for context from chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 25, through to verse 10 of chapter 6. So Galatians, beginning in verse 25 of chapter 5, Through verse 10 of chapter 6. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one, another burden, one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows one, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. says the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your word, which we celebrate and study this morning. As we come and rejoice in the birth of our Savior Christ and remember his incarnation, we ask God that you would give us a spirit and a heart filled with joy. Lord we ask for your time, this time to be one of rich blessing, exhortation and encouragement, of challenge, uh, but also one that leads us to great joy. We love you, O Lord, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well you can tell from the context, the greater context of chapter 6, Paul has now entered into the ethical section of the book of Galatians where he's now speaking more directly to the Christian life that is after, for several chapters, he's labored to show how the church must preserve and keep pure the gospel of Jesus Christ and the understanding of how that gospel saves us, namely not by works but by faith, he then wants us to see and understand that the gospel which saves us by faith alone is worked out in implications in living in a way that demonstrates, not that we've earned our salvation, but that we, having been saved by grace through faith, so live by grace through faith. And so, last week we looked at, in the end of chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and how those who are in Christ receive the Spirit and walk in the new life of the Spirit, gives. It's like a seed which was planted in each one of us when we've become Christians, and the Spirit is nurturing that seed so that it may grow and ripen into maturity to all the fruits there mentioned at the end of chapter 5. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This, of course, is not even an exhaustive list of all the mature fruit that a Christian would grow and produce in their lives as they are led by the Spirit. And this is really the whole point there of verse 25. For if we live by the Spirit and receive our life from the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, not becoming conceited or provoking, not envying one another, but our Spirit being led by the Spirit turns our attention and focus off of ourselves and onto those around us. And this is squarely where we land in chapter 6. We are focused now on the one another's within the church. The idea of what we're going to study this morning simply is this, that the Christian community that deeply considers and rejoices in the birth of Jesus will seek to be spiritually mature, will bear one another's burdens, and will fulfill the law of Christ a Christian community that deeply considers and rejoices in the birth of Jesus will seek to be spiritually mature, bear one another's burdens, and fulfill the law of Christ. There are four simple points as we work our way through the text. First notice in verse 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now he says, Brothers referring to Christians. Not to unbelieving professors, not to non-Christians, but to the churches in Galatia, referring to those who have received the Gospel, who are saved by grace through faith, and yet who will inevitably be caught in temptation and transgression. The force here of the exhortation is not necessarily just if, but when, but he says, if anyone is caught into a transgression, when that so happens, you who are spiritual, he says, should restore him to a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of gentleness. So he's acknowledging that even Christians on the road to maturity, pursuing and growing in faith and fruit, will nevertheless fall into temptation and transgress the, God, the, the will of the Lord, and so sin against him. In fact, there are even times and seasons in our life as Christians where we willfully step off the path of righteousness because we are caught in a snare of sin and temptation, gratified in in feeding the flesh our lusts, our desires, our pride. The exhortation then is for Christians who fall into such and are caught into such transgressions are to be rescued or restored From those who are spiritual. So, the first point we can take from verse 1 is that the spiritually mature have a responsibility to seek the restoration of the spiritually immature. To be sure to willfully allow yourself to step off the path of God's revealed word and will and righteousness into sin, you may be forgiven if you think being caught in a transgression is a sort of trap that you didn't see coming, when the reality is, the idea here is more, there is a allowing the weeds to have grown up and ensnare you, that those who do so are spiritually immature, that they are lacking in maturity, which leads them to live and walk according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. So those who walk according to the flesh, even as Christians, who give in to the desires of the flesh, who walk according to the flesh, need to be rescued or restored by those who are spiritual. And indeed, it is the spiritually mature's responsibility, the obligation of the spiritually mature, to seek the restoration of the spiritually immature. The word there, restored, is used often in a medical sense, that is, putting back into place a bone that has been broken or disjointed. I think it's an apt analogy that those within the body who are experiencing some sort of dislocation are restored, put back into joint, realigned with the body by those who are spiritually mature. Many years ago, I've shared this story before, I dislocated my patella, meaning my kneecap was about three inches to the left when it should have been, you know, in line with my leg. Now, I was taken to the ER, and that's its own story, being in the backwoods of West Virginia. But what does the doctor do? X-rays, make sure there's nothing, you know, terribly wrong, besides my kneecap not being where it should be. And the nurses come in, one guy holds my leg, one holds me down, the doctor counts to three, pushes it back in. And I walked out of the ER that night, just having five minutes, ten minutes before Not being able to walk without excruciating pain. Now, whatever my complaints about the small ER in West Virginia may be, and and I have some, (laughs) I am grateful for the doctor to have put right what was put out of joint. Incredibly painful. And a small moment of fooling around completely disabled my entire body from working the way it should. Even my fingers felt the pain from when my knee would move when there was something out of joint. It takes a spiritually mature person, or in my case, somebody who knew how and when to push the kneecap back into place so that I could walk again. The spiritually mature among us also have the responsibility to put back into place the disjointedness that the spiritually immature may cause. Now, this isn't necessary to fault those who are spiritually mature. We should expect new believers to continue to sin in immature ways. We should expect those who don't pursue diligently the the fruit of the Spirit to put themselves in the path of the means of grace to produce spiritually immature or malnourished fruit. And yet, it should still be the spiritually mature's responsibility to encourage, to correct, and at times to restore in gentleness the spiritually immature into maturity. Let's consider just quickly then what the spiritually mature look like. When he says those who are spiritual, he means simply those who not only have the Spirit, but are characterized by the Spirit. Just there above in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is these qualities and much more. So are the spiritually mature to be characterized by the same kind of fruit. Not that they have mastered or are perfected in these characters, but that they are characterized by the Spirit who is producing these fruits. So who are those we should consider spiritually mature among us at foundation? They should be those who are genuinely loving, who have a joyful disposition, even in sorrowful circumstances. Those who seem to be at peace amidst chaos. Those who are patient and somehow supernaturally kind. Those who are faithful in their endeavors despite the temptations they often face at work or in culture. Those who are regularly gentle and tender towards others. Those who are self-controlled and sober-minded. It is the spiritually mature among us who is to look and care for the body to help restore those who are spiritually mature. So a spiritually mature Christian is one who is first characterized by the Spirit. Secondly, they are concerned for the body. They look for the spiritually immature and help to seek their maturity. Not in a condescending way, but notice in a gentle fashion. They're concerned for the health of the body and so if a member of the body is disjointed or out of place, it gently ushered back in, restored into fellowship and unity with the body. There needs to be a concern for the church. When we see a brother or sister wandering or caught in a sinful habit or those who are caught by any transgression, whether big or small, it is the duty of the spiritually mature to say, Dear brother, dear sister, please consider your ways. Repent from your sin. Be restored. In many ways, in many fashions, this can take The idea is that the the spiritually mature are not only characterized by the spirit, but concerned for the body. But again, spiritual maturity doesn't mean that our correction and restoration is condescending or harsh. But the word here is gentle. To be restored in a spirit of gentleness. So it's demonstrated, the, the maturity of the Christian is demonstrated, not in condescension or harshness, but in humility and meekness. That's what the word means, and the spiritually mature themselves are not immune to the effects of sins. They too must be diligent to safeguard against them. He says there at the end of verse 1, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So the calling of the spiritually mature is to grow and to nurture in the fruit of the Spirit by God's grace so that they can help correct, restore, and care for those who are out of place in the body not as those who are unbelievers, but in the church, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, to be corrected and restored. There then at the end of verse 10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the spirits of mature have a responsibility, an obligation to the spiritually immature, to help shepherd and lead and guide and to restore those who are caught in transgressions because of their spiritual maturity. Now this isn't everyone in the church. By definition, it can't be everyone in the church. There always will be in a growing church some who are spiritually mature and some who are spiritually immature. Not simply new believers, but even our children as well. Children, please do not assume that because you are children of believing parents, you are spiritually mature. You may answer the catechism question right and good for you, but there's a lot of character development between answering a catechism question and walking in faith in the fruit of the Spirit. Consider the fruit of the Spirit there again. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As you pursue this, then you pursue maturity. But the spiritually mature Christian is simply operating from a more general disposition of love. Love towards one another, service towards others. Every believer is called to embody and practice that kind of service. And so, the second point this morning, in other words, is that it is every Christian's duty to bear one another's burdens. There's a special obligation on the spiritually mature to come alongside, restore, and correct the spiritually immature, those who are caught in transgression. But it is every Christian's duty and obligation to come alongside of each other and to bear one another's burdens. Not simply the spiritually mature, but the path towards maturity looks like bearing with the burdens of others. Two things to be said about burden bearing. First, burdens are universal. Burdens are real. And every one of us has them. Some of them may be physical illnesses, sicknesses, disabilities. Some of them may be more spiritually burdened by anxiety. Some of them may be relationally burdened or circumstantially burdened. But burdens are universal because we live in a world that's fallen and marred by sin. Even creation is burdened by sin and groans for the longing of restoration. So let's first acknowledge that each one of us has needs. And let's shatter them the myth that because we're Christians, we don't carry burdens anymore. Indeed, we we let go of the great burden of earning our salvation, but it doesn't mean that the burden of sin and temptation and trouble no longer vexes us. That's a false gospel that teaches us that we simply believe and our burdens are gone. Let's acknowledge that though we are saved by grace, and we come to Christ, whose yoke is easy and burden is light, that the troubles of this world are not immediately evaporated. Shatter the myth of the prosperity gospel and what's been called easy believism, that everything works out well when you become a Christian. But second, let us also remember not only that burdens are universal and we all have them, but that burdens then must be shared with one another, this is the command here in the text: bear one another's burdens. In verse two, this isn't uh, this isn't conditional whether you like the person, about whether the burden is a match for your needs that you can meet, whether this person has earned your help. But it is to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. They must be shared. So just as we would shatter the myth of the prosperity gospel that says when we are Christians, we have no troubles, let us also shatter the myth of self-sufficiency. It is true that God gives us often more than we can handle. And he does this so that the body can handle it with you. He does not tempt you beyond your means, but he does often give us more than we on our own could handle. We are not created to be self-sufficient, autonomous individuals but we were created with to be within a community of fellowship. And so we cast, of course, our burdens on the Lord, but we share and carry our burdens together in the body of Christ. So pride often keeps us under the crushing weight of these burdens because we're unwilling to acknowledge that we have a burden and we are unwilling to ask for help when the burden becomes too great. Now, we don't want to become... So burdensome that we vex or trouble our friends and our neighbors. But we must share our burdens, particularly so that others may fulfill the law of Christ. Notice that this is a matter of obedience. When you fail to share your burden with a brother or sister in fair foundation, you prevent them from obeying Scripture. You see, if there's no way that I can help a brother carry a burden, there is no way I can fulfill the law of Christ as it relates to my family in Christ. So you must share your burdens and shatter the myth of self-sufficiency. Destroy the pride that would keep you under the weight of your heavy burdens. In fact, you can put it this way. the, The Bible teaches us that the comfort of God is shared through the comfort of others. The care of others facilitates the comfort of God. Paul's no stranger to trials and burdens, and he says to the Corinthians that he was burdened, but was comforted by God through the sending of Titus, who cared for him. The care of others often is the facilitating of the comfort of God. And so when we bear the burdens of one another, come alongside, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, bear the burdens of others, we extend to them the comfort and the help of God. And so it is every one of our duties and obligations to bear each other's burdens, to acknowledge that we all have them, and to press into each other's lives in such a way that we may share those burdens with one another. Thirdly, the call to restore those who are caught in sin and to help bear the burdens of others ultimately is a call, we say in verse two, to fulfill the law of Christ. And this is an interesting phrase to fulfill the law of Christ. He says that when we bear each other's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean by this? Well, the law of Christ isn't a set of legal demands. It's not another set of rules to do or to keep. Paul's already repeatedly warned against all that kind of legalism, and he's already contrasted the law of Moses with this law. The law of Moses was a set of commands, The law of Christ is different. Now, there are certainly commands Christians are to keep. Bearing the burdens of others is one of them. But the law of Christ isn't simply another legal code that Christians put themselves under that they may work to. Rather, the law of Christ, as Paul uses it here, is the pattern of a Christian life that's been demonstrated by Jesus. That is the new law Christians submit to and fulfill is not a list of do's and don'ts, of regulations, of sacrifices, of moral codes, but rather the embodiment of Jesus' life that we are to follow in the footsteps of. Jesus demonstrates what has been summed up in the entire law, the love of God and the love of neighbor. So the law of Christ is simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. It's the spirit-led, God-dependent, self-sacrificing, others-serving, humility-driven hospitality and care towards others that Jesus perfectly embodies and perfectly demonstrated on earth. This is what Jesus does. He comes not only to bear our sins and our burdens, but he does so by bearing the burden of our own flesh. We consider Christmas, the incarnation, is the God-man taking on the form of a servant, of a human. There's a burden that Jesus takes on just in the Incarnation alone. He enters into, the Bible calls, the weakness and the frailty of the human condition. He limits himself in, in a very real way by taking on humanity. Not, of course, ceasing to be God, infinite and wise. But he limits himself by taking on humanity to himself. He sets aside the the divine prerogative of his divinity so that he may take on flesh born under the law and bears the burden of the human condition. And he bears the burden of our sin. And he bears this burden of our sin and of our humanity under the burden of the cross. This is why Jesus was born. So the law of Christ means that we follow in the footsteps of him who has bared our burden, who has taken on our sin, who suffered on the burden of our cross, so that we then in turn may bear the burdens of others. Jesus himself restores us to God through this burden bearing. So as the spiritually mature are called to bear the burdens of others and to restore those who are caught in transgressions, we look to Jesus, who not only has borne our burdens of flesh and sin under the burden of the cross, but works under that burden-bearing to restore us to God through his burden-bearing death. Even more than this, Jesus beckons us to draw near to him and to be restored because he is, just like the spirits who mature are called to be, gentle and lowly. These are the words gen- Jesus used to describe himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, burdened, bruised by the fall, for I am gentle and lowly, That's the same root word in the Greek. Jesus' word for gentle and gentleness here in verse 1. So who is the epitome of gentleness? It is Jesus. Jesus in the flesh. Jesus who became a man. Jesus who bears our burdens. Jesus who went to the cross. Jesus who invites us to come. Come all to me. Who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, the call to restore those caught in sin and to help bear the burden of others is a call to fulfill the law of Christ. Let's end with just two thoughts then as we consider and think about the birth of Christ this morning. The incarnation is the taking on of flesh, the, the enfleshing of Jesus, the Son of God. What we learn here from Paul's letter in Galatians is that the incarnation, the birth of Christ, is paradigmatic for the Christian life. That means it, it sets the rubric for how we ought to live. Notice that he says that if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, deceives himself. That is, we must follow in the footsteps of Christ by fulfilling the law of Christ, thinking as he did, Philippians 2, having this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Humility, gentleness, mildness, meekness, this is what characterized Jesus in the incarnation. Therefore, it is the birth of Jesus which is paradigmatic for the Christian life. What does the incarnation do? It is Jesus entering into the brokenness, into the shame, into the sin, into the darkness of the world, that it may carry the burden of others under the cross, that it may give light to those who are caught in transgression. Do you see how then the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, is the perfect example of our burden bearing for one another? That the incarnational approach to life together means that we enter into each other's life? the difficulties, the darkness, the say, the shame, the sin, and we call them to repentance and we work with them to restore them to fellowship within the body and the Spirit. We help them grow and nurture in the flourishing of the fruit of the Spirit because Christ came and did the same. And so, Secondly, then we learn that Jesus' Incarnation empowers us to become the kind of Spirit-filled community that bears one another's burdens and we do this in the name of Christ. So the Christian community that wants to bear each other's burden, that be the ideal community that we see in the Bible, caring for, loving, serving one another, must not look to ourselves. But this morning, let us look to Christ. Let us look to the Son of God born in a manger, who takes on the burden of humanity and the frailty of our sin, who has gone to the cross, that he may suffer for us, though he sinned not. He robes himself in flesh, that we may be robed in glory and righteousness. He goes to the cross to bear our burden, that we may go to one another and bear each other's. This is the Christian life according to the incarnation. Friends, what I would encourage you to do this morning as you go home and you celebrate Christmas with your family, do not forget that Jesus became a man so that he could bear your burden, your sin of which all of us are guilty the burden under which all of us are born into this world in rebellion against the Lord. He takes that darkness, that brokenness, that shame, and that sin, he takes it upon himself by becoming a man and by being led to the cross. And there the Lord pours out all of his wrath against our sin and your sin and mine on Christ. There the real weight and burden of sin is felt. But it's felt by Christ so that it would not be felt by us. Paul simply says, if that's the gospel, you've believed it and been changed by that. Simply live that with others. Live that with those who are in the household of faith. If you're not a Christian this morning, or you're trying to wrap yourself around how God has become man, how that man has been led to the cross, how and in what way he's taken on your burden of sin, I want to simply encourage you this morning to think about what sin truly means. It is the burden of rebellion, of rejection, and ultimately judgment from God. But Christ has come so that he may bear your burden for you. Foundation, as we consider Christmas and the birth of Christ this morning, let us pray that as we walk in the Spirit, we may also walk in the humility that Christ walked in as he bore our burdens so that we can turn to others and bear theirs. We'll spend more on this in the next coming weeks in more detail, but let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the the small but encouraging help that if we are to bear one another's burdens anyway, we must look to Christ. And we think specifically this morning of the incarnation, the very beginning of setting the trajectory of our burden bearing in others' lives by his burden bearing of our sin. God became man, the son of God becomes the son of man. He takes on flesh, he bears our burdens so that we would be restored. And this empowers us as a church community to be spirit-led in the burden-bearing of others for your glory. All in the name of Christ, which we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to sing. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at FoundationFXBG.